Vision therapy is essentially physical therapy for the brain through the eyes. Rewiring the software in the brain to change how somebody uses their visual system. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Bryce Applebaum. Today, he will share the misdiagnoses and missed opportunities of vision, why healthcare has it all wrong about the eyes. This is part one of a two-part series. Today, we'll dive into what vision therapy is, why nearsightedness is increasing at an alarming rate, how ADD, ADHD, and dyslexia are related to vision, and talk about controversy over eye patching. He's full of tips along the way. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Bryce Applebaum, who's a pioneer in neurooptometry, passionate about unlocking life's potential through vision. His expertise includes reorganizing the visual brain post-concussion to return to learn and return to life, remediating visual developmental delays interfering with reading and learning, and enhancing visual skills to elevate sports performance. Dr. Applebaum has been featured on the front page of USA Today in the New York Times Magazine, Bethesda Magazine, and as the cover story of OT Advanced. Dr. Applebaum has worked with hundreds of professional athletes, numerous professional and collegiate sports teams, and countless amateur athletes to transform raw talent into honed performance through vision. He also helps teams consider who to draft or sign as free agents based on assessing a player's visual potential and identifying how far off they may be from operating at that ceiling. He's the owner and managing doctor at Applebaum Vision PC, a private practice specializing in vision therapy and rehabilitation with offices in Bethesda and Annapolis, Maryland. Dr. Applebaum is a board-certified fellow of the College of Optometrists in Vision Development and an adjunct clinical professor at the Southern College of Optometry. Dr. Applebaum is on mission to change the way the world views vision. He believes there's more to vision than to just 20-20 eyesight and has developed programs to retrain the brain to revise the eyes. He's here with us today to discuss the misdiagnosis and missed opportunities of vision, why healthcare has it all wrong about the eyes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Applebaum. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gray. Pleasure to be here. That was quite the bio, kind of hard on my eyes. Just kidding. <laughs> I wanted to give you a workout to begin with. So. <laughs> so I do want to echo what I read in your bio. I want listeners to know why healthcare has it all wrong about the eyes. But first, what got you so interested in this unique specialty? Great question. So um, when I was a child, I had very substantial visual developmental delays that contributed to a really high, abnormally high prescription at an early age. I had reduced eyesight. I had depth perception problems. I had sensory integration challenges, motor delays, couldn't catch a ball. I was a mess. And luckily, my father was a an eye doctor and he was getting into this field and basically created the specialty for me where I attribute all of my success in life athletically, academically, a lot of even what I've learned interpersonally to what I learned with vision therapy. And obviously, we'll talk about what's involved there. But I deeply know what it feels like to struggle with reading and learning, with feeling different, you know, not being cast out by your peers, and and even more so how unbelievably life-changing it can be to turn a weakness into a strength. And so now I'm very passionate about helping people and not letting them be on the path I was on. I love hearing, and a progressive one at that, because that was years ago. So let's dive into what vision therapy is. So I'm assuming that's what you use to help you, right? So what is vision therapy? And why have so many people not heard of this? Great question. So vision therapy is essentially physical therapy for the brain through the eyes. Rewiring the software in the brain to change how somebody uses their visual system. 
so many people have not heard about this. And that's, that is a, the mission I'm on is to raise awareness because we're all taught in school how to look at eyesight and eye health and how to intervene when there's disease and how to deal with structure, but so little on function. And you have to do a separate residency and fellowship and all of that. And there's just very few people in, in this space. We don't have to be board certified to offer vision therapy, but I would ar- argue the level of, of care is dramatically different when you are. And so that's just a, a process that's elective, but it helps you really know what you know and what you don't know and how to learn what you don't know. Like, so how rare is this? Because we were talking before we started recording, there might be just one person near us that has even some of this minimal training, but like how, how rare are we talking like few eye doctors per state? Definitely a handful per state, um, depending on the state as well. Um, in, in, I'm in, in uh, Maryland, right outside Washington, D.C. And in D.C. and Maryland, there are eight doctors board certified out of like six or 7,000. And those eight comprise five different practices. So there's a lot more people doing vision therapy. I know a lot of physical therapists have adopted some of these techniques, a lot of OTs, a lot of speech therapists, just based off of the awareness. Being do raised. chiropractors too? I mean, do, are there some, some chiropractors will actually have somebody come in wearing their glasses and do manipulations and look at different balancing procedures through the lenses to see like, is this prescription right? Is it off? And, and I, that's a little bit out there, but work on vision and the visual brain can be considered vision therapy, I guess, depending on the lens you're seeing Mm -hmm. it through. I've already decided I needed it, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) So but let's talk about nearsightedness. So I think that's increasing at an alarming rate with children. And so part of me wants to think, is that from screens and are screens bad for our eyes? Can we go there? Talk nearsightedness and, you know, danger of screens. All visual skills are learned skills. And when every child is born, we don't know how to track or focus or converge or use our eyes. And it's something that through our life experiences, we develop the ability to use our eyes together. So that's something that's either learned well or not learned as well as it could be. And that's when some intervention is needed more so than ever. And I, I know you have a young child. Kids are being introduced to technology at earlier and earlier ages than ever. Kids are reading in kindergarten when most are not visually ready for reading in kindergarten. And to really simplify it, if we're presented with stress from our environment and we don't have the tools in place to meet those demands, we either adapt or we avoid. Nearsightedness has two main components, genetics and environment. Can't do much about genetics, can't control who your parents are. But environment-wise, you know, if you're presented with these challenges and you don't have the vision development to support that, then we usually adapt. And usually that occurs with near issues. So then far away blur becomes the symptom of the near problem. And our profession treats the symptom and says, well, you can't see the letters on a letter chart. Here are some glasses. And absolutely, that makes far away clear. But then very often, that becomes your new normal. You adapt to that. You need something stronger for the same clarity. Then you're on this cycle where you're in glasses for the rest of your life that are always changing. Are you saying screens are actually more bad at a younger age then? A thousand percent. Screens are more bad at a younger age. More bad. <laughs> yeah, there, there are Worse, gui- yeah. guidelines from American Academy of Pediatrics that say no child under, I think it just says no child should be on a screen for more than two hours. I usually say like if you're under 18 months, uh, limit screen time to just never, with, or, yeah. never. But FaceTime with some, a loved one, especially over COVID where you're not seeing somebody, but that's it. And then as you get older, you know, that should go up to like 30 minutes if you're under two, maybe an hour if you're under five, and then really everything in moderation, you know, taking as many breaks as you can. So obviously an iPad in front of your face is, I would think, worse than TV across the room. So is distance very important? I think you had a social media post about this. 
maybe with your kid having them scooch back. <laughs> so yeah, so rule of thumb, larger the screen, the farther away, the better. It gives all your listeners an excuse to go buy the biggest TV they can find and put it as far away as they can. Because what happens when it's up close is you, it's a significantly different demand on the visual system. So the outside muscles have to converge the eyes. The inside muscles have to focus the eyes. And that synergy between those two systems is really the root cause of most functional visual developmental delays and, and the problems that occur. Very interesting. I want to go back to genetics because you said one component of nearsightedness is genetics because my eye doctor always says that, but I kind of feel like we always just blame everything on genetics. So that's true, but the variable we can change is this, the environment, like you're saying, distance is on your side. So genetics-wise, based off of the alarming increase in nearsightedness that is dramatically increased, I think there's an estimation that by 2050, about half of the population will be nearsighted. If both parents are nearsighted, the child has a one in two chance of becoming nearsighted. If one parent is, it's one in three. And if zero parents are, I think it's one in four. And that's just our environment. This wasn't an issue 50 years ago, you know, before there were all these tablets and phones. And obviously, there's a time and a place for tablets for young kids. But I'm sure you've seen many parents who use a screen as a babysitter and then, you know, they're stuck at that distance forever. And I never thought I would be that parent, but there have been times where I'm like, just watch the... We all are there, right? But I think a good way to, to think about it is like, if you were to squeeze your hand as hard as you can, you can do it for maybe five, 10 seconds and your hand's going to start to, to kind of get sore and get tired. But if you were to do this open and close, you could do it for a very long time and still maintain that stamina. Our muscles that control focus in our eyes are sphincter, they're circular. So when you look close, the muscle constricts. When you look far, it relaxes. You're stuck on a screen, you're stuck with it constricted, and there's not a whole lot you can do without looking away, taking breaks, and you know, balancing that type of setup. Sure, makes sense. What about ADD, ADHD? So could those behaviors be due to hidden vision problems? So uh, we have a 30-question predictive checklist of the most common symptoms associated with treatable visual developmental delays. More than half of those symptoms are the exact same symptoms on the dsm 4 classification for ADD or ADHD. Most diagnoses of attention problems are based off of behavior and observation and sometimes testing, but there's not really a way to measure a biochemical balance in the brain to know whether somebody needs more of a certain neurotransmitter or doesn't. From a vision standpoint, there's two particular diagnoses, but the most common one is something called convergence insufficiency. Convergence insufficiency means, uh, by the language you think it means, that somebody can't cross their eyes. But essentially what it is is a spatial mismatch in that the outside muscles are not coordinating well to keep both eyes pointing and focused on a near target. So a simple way to test this is take a, an expensive piece of equipment, take a pen or pencil, have, have your child or yourself look at that, and you're going to bring it close along your midline all the way up to your nose until you can't make it single or clear anymore. It should be pretty effortless to our nose, but for so many kids, that near point of convergence is reduced, and so they say they can't make it one, there becomes this competition between which eye looks at it, and then they look away, or you see an eye drift. Convergence insufficiency is so unbelievably common in kids. Some studies say as high as 20% of kids have this. But if you're diagnosed with that, you're way more likely to be mislabeled as having a problem with attention because think about a child in a classroom setting or being asked to read or write. 
you're having to converge your eyes to be up close. This only happens in here. And if you can't maintain the stamina or keep your eyes pointing and focus at that place, the words move, you lose your place. You have to look away and disengage. And, and so often kids in the classroom are not paying attention or it seems like that, but they're really relying on auditory rather than vision because vision's not providing them the feedback that, that they want or deserve. Mm, yeah. Before you medicate your children, yeah, listen to the episode where we talk about diet, reducing inflammatory foods and also get vision check. But not I don't even say get your vision check because parents are getting their children's vision check. So here, here's a great way to look at it. Think of eyesight and vision as separate entities. Eyesight's how well we see. That's letters on a, a letter chart in an eye exam, a street sign when you're driving, the, the board in the classroom. Vision is entirely brain and how the brain tells the eyes what to do and how we drive meaning direct action. So even just asking a doc, any eye doctor should know how to test for convergence insufficiency. Okay. So you can ask for that then. Yep. You can ask for that. They may not. I think the what it means, what it implies, and the treatment is going to be all over the place. But there's lots of great resources online that give tons of information on convergence insufficiency and treatable vision problems. One great one is visionhelp.com, V-I-S-I-O-N-H-E-L-P. It's a complete advocacy group I'm a part of with the goal of just raising awareness. Sure. And there's videos, uh, research, a lot on there on convergence insufficiency and a ton of other stuff as well. For the listeners, I'll post that link in the show notes too. Great information. Okay, what about dyslexia? So along similar lines, um, dyslexia by definition means difficulty reading words. I'm biased, of course, but I would say 95% of people I work with have difficulty reading words, but because of a vision problem that was hidden previously. So often tracking our eyes and keeping them pointing on the word across the page and focusing our eyes and making the words clear and converging our eyes to see a single clear image. If those are not operating or, or functioning where they should, it's going to be a lot harder to read those words, to decode, to then comprehend that information, to think about that information. And so very often, kind of like ADD or ADHD, dyslexia is a diagnosis that describes behavior. There's more testing that's standardized to kind of assign that label, but it's it's very often the visual centers and language centers are not communicating with each other. And there's lots of different treatments out there that can help improve reading, especially for those with that label of dyslexia, because oftentimes it's not accurate. And, and when it is accurate and there's problems with phonological awareness and kind of getting the sounds with the letters and the words and being able to filter all that and make sense of it. You know, that, that's something that can be improved with the right type of learning to take place. What would you say some of your misperceptions, well, not your misperceptions, what are some of probably the listeners misperceptions about vision? I could go in so many directions here. So um, I would say one of the biggest is your prescription shouldn't really change every year. And that's kind of a an explosion in, in many people's minds, you know, if we're adapting to the lens we're in and we're needing something stronger to maintain the same clarity, we're kind of going down a path. But if we think about a functional root cause of that is maybe the focusing system can't hold focus and can't sustain it, or there's not flexibility there, or we're on screens too much, or we're not able to meet the demands of life, you treat the symptom, it gets Far away has to get clear with a stronger lens. But if you treat the problem, the underlying functional coordination problem, then the symptom goes away. Which makes me so angry because I feel like that was me year after year after year. Granted, I was obviously on my computer or in books studying, right? So through my you know early 20s and even into my 30s. And 
my doctor kept saying, oh, your, your vision will normalize. It'll, it'll, it'll quit declining. Cause I, I was thinking at that time I wanted to get LASIK eye surgery and every year I'd go back and I, and I kept thinking, well, certainly this is, you know, this deterioration is going to level off and I can eventually qualify for LASIKs. And my vision just kept getting worse and it kept wanting to up my prescription. And I finally said, no. I don't want it up anymore. I feel like because I had someone in one of my classes who was from another country and she said, no, no, when we go to see our eye doctor, like we want, we ask for less power, not more power because we want to, you know, work our eyes and not just be kind of dependent on that. But I, I feel like I got robbed. I feel like I kind of got screwed because and so much of the world is robbed. We're all taught to have everybody see the smallest letters, crystal clear HD all day long. Not everybody has to see the same. You have to have vision, not interfere and be able to see clear enough to be successful in life. But I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I think th there's a joke in our profession that it's rare to find a an attorney or a doctor, somebody who's been through a lot of reading and studying and schooling who doesn't have a prescription. I mean, we adapt to near. If, if we adapt to everything in life. We either avoid or adapt. So if we're adapting, the more near there is, the more near visual demands, the more likely that you know far away is going to be compromised. Evolutionarily, we're meant to be scanning the horizon and looking for things in the distance. We're now making these scanning eye movements on screens with really small font and graphics all day long in many cases. And, you know, these problems were much rarer many, many years ago. Okay, so that's one misperception. Got a few more. Yes. Um, and one of the big ones that I get asked about all the time is uh, the right drops for our eyes. Yes. Uh, and yes. I want to, if, if we, your listeners can leave with one take home, well, two take homes. One's going to be that vision therapy can change your life. Number two, uh, don't use Visine. And Visine is a eye drop that constricts the blood vessels so that the eyes don't appear as red. But the second the drug wears off, there's a rebound effect that's twice as high and they're red for a reason. The red blood vessels are red to bring in more oxygen because of some underlying cause. And if you figure out, you know, I mean, there's plenty of drops that are great, like artificial tears that are non-preservative, or there's supplements you can take that can help with that. But I think in, in most cases, the, the, red, the redness is because of some sort of dryness or irritation or virus or bacteria. Visine makes it worse. So please don't use that. You have a good video on that on your Instagram as well, which that that caught my eye, haha. But I, nice. <laughs> but I uh, previously had Claudia, you know Claudia, on the show. Her episode hasn't aired yet, but it'll likely air before yours will actually. And we talked a little bit about just dry eyes in general, and she does recommend resting your eyes, right, and cupping your eyes, and like blinking to help with with dry whatnot. But one of my questions I had for her, which is the same question for you, of course, is what are the you know best eye drops? You're saying non preservative. So the, the single use, like the single use, I, I do use those because I have pretty bad dry eyes, unfortunately. But I think those are housed in plastic. And because I have a hormone clinic, right, and I'm so worried about endocrine disrupting chemicals, I can't help but wonder, you know, if those eye drops get shipped from Amazon, they're in my mailbox sitting in 100 degrees in Iowa weather. Is that plastic leaching into the... And to be honest, we don't really no. know. There's not yeah. enough has been done there, but I can give you a solution that avoids all of that. One uh, hack for your health. Omega-3 fatty acids. Which I are, take. You know, thank you. Yes, yes. They're amazing. But from the tear film standpoint, there's three layers to our tear film. The outer layer is a layer called the mucin layer. Omega-3 is in the right consistency and the right quality. I usually recommend 1,000 milligrams twice a day. Produces that layer of the tear film in a more viscous, thicker fashion. So your tears don't evaporate as quickly. There's a protective barrier. And it's rare for somebody with mild dryness 
who takes omega-3 fatty acids to not see a huge improvement in terms of symptoms. And then you're avoiding plastic and bottles if it's good sourced fish oil and, and in the right place. Absolutely. And I do notice my husband, yeah, I complain about my dry eyes. And then he says, well, how much fish oil are you taking? Because I do notice when I take two grams versus one gram, I do notice yeah. a difference because I've, I've taken one gram my, like almost my entire life, even as a kid. Like, <laughs> But when I, when I jump it up, I do notice a difference, I feel like, with the, the two grams. To add one quick thing. So I would say ideally for the first two weeks, take one gram at separate intervals. So one in the morning, one at night. Divided. Divide it. You'll be able to absorb it more easily. Uh, thank you. I would agree with that. So Claudia had recommended the, um, I think they're from Switzerland, Similisan or something like that. Have you heard of those? More homeopathic? Uh, well, what do you think? What are your thoughts? I did order them. I haven't used them yet, but. They can be very helpful. They're a little more natural and holistic. And, and yeah, I think there's, yeah. there's some really good drops like Sistane or Soothe or That's Refresh what I, yep. that are, I would say, equally as good and in many cases more effective. Sure. But, you know, as long as there's no preservatives and as long as you're trusting what's in there, then that's great. I think drinking a ton of water can be helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, that, that's a, a fine one. But it, it's... Uh, Any other misperceptions? Yes. Um, misperceptions about eye problems being brain problems. All eye problems are brain problems for the most part. So any problem with tracking or focusing or converging or eye teaming or depth perception are all problems that initiate in the brain and can be treated through the brain. And if you're addressing it on the eye basis, it makes it much harder to be able to see any changes in terms of the problems that are occurring. There's neuroplasticity at every age. Let's talk uh, about that. Define neuroplasticity. Let's go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So neuroplasticity is our, our brain's ability to learn new things and to create new synaptic connections or new wiring that supports what is being learned. Any brain at any age can be taught new tricks. One of the biggest misperceptions in the vision world from doctors is that most are taught in school. And I was taught in school and I graduated to Tomter School in 2009 that there's a critical period for vision development and that after age eight, you blow out the candles and then all of a sudden, the visual centers of the brain can no longer be taught and what you see is what you get and you're stuck with where everything is. As silly as that sounds, that's still preached by the majority of ophthalmology and a lot of doctors, again, who are trained on intervention of eye disease and on structure and not on function. I I currently have a 98-year-old, 92-year-old, and 89-year-old all in vision therapy, developing depth perception for the first time. Um, I will say as we get older, malleability decreases. And there's, you know, as you can attest to when infants, kids, our brains are like sponges and you can learn things so much more easily. But with the right arrangement of conditions and the right situation where you're, you're appropriately being taught from the right sequence of learning and from the right foundation, any brain at any age can be retaught. Depth perception can be developed at any age as long as there's two eyes. You know, we can tap into that, to that wiring. Very encouraging. Any other misperceptions or did we cover? How, how long do we have here? I've, I've, got, I've got a bunch. There's a lot about patching and about... Amp- let's go there. Yeah. So let's first kind of clarify two different terms that often get confused strabismus and amblyopia. Strabismus is an eye turn. Amblyopia is a lazy eye. Both of these have huge misperceptions. So start with strabismus, which is an eye turn. 
most eye turns are brain problems manifesting through the eyes, meaning there's no concern with eye muscle strength or length. It's the same with all of the six eye muscles that, that surround each eye externally. It's more coordination. So if we can go, go back to what we talked about earlier about uh, vision is learned, a child who skips over crawling or who walks too early and doesn't have the bilateral integration and the motor foundation to support the vision learning that comes and all of a sudden everything's static and then they start moving and are unstable and then their eye-teaming, their visual system is all unstable. Very often an eye term stems from walking before we're ready to be walking. Fast forward then to later in life, and later in life, eye turns are developed. If we're talking about the convergence of deficiency, which is fragile eye teaming at near, if we're then because of a rivalry or competition over sensory input, meaning the brain can't understand how to filter both eyes at the same time, it picks one and ignores the other and throws it in or out or up or down so that it doesn't have to be involved with vision learning. Most eye turns are treated from a medical community standpoint with eye muscle surgery. Oh, okay. I was thinking that's where I was thinking the patch was coming in, but yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So with eye muscle surgery, it's very, very rare to have a functional cure. Best case scenario is a cosmetic cure, meaning the eyes look like they're straight, but for them to act like they're straight and for them to act like they're working together, the visual centers of the brain we're talking about need to then learn how to use both eyes together and filter and process the input at the same time to develop 3D vision or depth perception. Amblyopia, which is the lazy eye, meaning one eye not seeing as well as the other, stems from three different, one of three different things. Either the prescription's really high or different in one eye. And the brain, rather than using both, says, I want to use the eye that's easier to, to see clearly with. I'm going to just ignore the other. It happens from an eye turn, meaning if one eye is out and the other eye is straight, vision learning, vision development doesn't happen with that outside eye. And so the brain just learns how to see with the eye that's straight and the other eye gets ignored. Or it happens if there's some sort of structural problem early on, like somebody's born with a, a cataract in their eye or, or you know has, for whatever reason, some sort of blockage from that brain using that eye. Then amblyopia, which is the ability to see the small letters, uh, the inability to see the small letters, that's what, that's what comes out. Old school treatment is, is patching. So to look at it as a good eye and a bad eye. So let's cover up the good eye so the bad eye has to work. We now have the research to support what my profession has known forever in that amblyopia is a two-eyed problem just showing up on one side. And unless it's addressed on a two-eyed basis, it doesn't really get better. So a lot of kids who go through patching, you know, not even to considering the, the emotional toll that takes walking around with a patch on and feeling different from their peers and not being able to see out of that eye, but from a functional standpoint... You know, it's teaching the bad eye to be, to engage in the presence of the good eye. And so the advanced treatments are literally learning how to pick out that eye's input when the other eye is there. So that's done with virtual reality or augmented reality or different filters or lenses or prism, all the tools that we have uh, with optometric vision therapy to be able to equalize the skills with each eye. So when both eyes are open, neither one takes over because there's not a difference between each eye's information. Yes, yeah, super interesting. But now I want to go off on a tangent, another tangent about eye patching, because my brother had a retinal detachment in his mid 30s. You know, and he, I feel, I feel bad because he told me I'm losing my vision. And I said, go to the eye doctor, but I should have said, go now, not wait. So I kind of feel bad. Like I, I could have pressured him to go earlier. He's very lucky he didn't lose vision in the eye. I mean, they said he was one in a, I don't know, 100,000. I mean, he's a, it is a very rare case. 
because he had no other risk factors. It was no trauma, nothing. But basically, he had surgery and then he wore a patch for almost a year. And I think he was disserviced. And I, because I'm hearing about things like vision therapy right now. And I'm just wondering what he maybe wasn't offered that he should have been, but he finally got the patch off. And the eye is, I mean, his vision is so, it's terrible in that eye. And I will correct something I did say. If the discrepancy is, is very, very large between each eye, meaning like one eye can see the small letters, the other one can't even tell where the lights are on or just the big E, then patching can be effective. But really active learning with the patch on is what's needed not just go through life covering that eye. It's more, let's do like discriminatory tasks. So picking up straws, cutting up in little pieces and taking a, a stick and scooping them up. Or for a child stringing Fruit Loops or Cheerios on a string, this kind of visually guided motor control work then allows the brain to put together the input from the tactile senses and the auditory senses with the visual senses to be able to then understand more effectively where that is and how to engage with it. Yeah, I think he needs to see you, but happy to. Yeah. (laughs) This two-part series is super interesting to me as I feel like my whole family could benefit from vision therapy. For now, I'm glad he reminded me that distance is on our side. We need to back our kids away from their screens, and I know I need to take more of my fish oil. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we'll talk about how vision impacts sports performance, discuss concussions, how COVID can impact vision, talk motion sickness, and supplements for the eyes. Dr. Applebaum said vision therapy can change your life, and I believe it. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Applebaum, use code DrGray10, that's D-R-G-R-A-Y-10, to receive 10% off his recently released Screen Fit program. Their premier doctor-created online vision training program designed to transform your tired, strained, and blurry computer eyes into HD clear vision. Link will be posted in the show notes. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.